Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday. It is November 21st, and as always, thanks so much for joining me. On today's show, I will be joined, or we'll be talking, excuse me, about the issue of concussions. How are we doing as humans when it comes to concussion assessment and the ability to diagnose and understand them? What tools are out there to help those in the medical field deal with these brain injuries? And when it comes to concussions in sport, it's not always the most obvious of athletes that are at risk. To end off today's program, we will be joined by the CEO of Hedgehog Health in Vancouver as it has launched a new partnership with Sigafredo, uh, which is an international cycling team. Now, when I first read concussions in cycling, I thought, well, that doesn't seem to be a sport where there would be at a, a high risk for concussions. But then, uh, you know, when you think about it and you see some of those big cycling pileups that happen on road races, I took a step back and thought, yep, I can totally see how one may get a concussion in the sport of cycling. So apparently more than 20% of road cyclists experience a uh, sport-related concussion. So Harrison will be joining me in the final segment of today's show to talk about this new partnership and how the head check tool works. So stay tuned for that. To kick off the back half of today's show, I will be speaking with Lawrence Goodridge, who is with the Canadian Research Institute for Food Safety and the Department of Food Science at the University of Guelph. We will be talking about the impact that climate change will have on our food. Goodridge says climate change appears to be fueling a rise in people getting sick from foodborne illnesses in Canada and around the world. Causes include increased flooding that is washing contaminants like salmonella, listeria, and E. coli onto crops and uh, rising ocean temperatures that allow bacteria to flourish in shellfish. So Lawrence will join me in about 20 minutes or so to talk about that and what we can do to make sure we are protected or if that is even possible to do. Now, uh, to begin today's show, though, I'm going to be discussing Justin Trudeau's new cabinet. Trudeau unveiled a larger cabinet yesterday that aims to advance liberal campaign promises to tackle climate change and promote middle-class prosperity while attempting to soothe regional tensions worsened by last month's election outcome. In last month's election, the Prime Minister said Canadians voted to pull together the country to focus on issues of economic growth for the middle class, to fight climate change, and keep Canadians and their communities safe. Uh, one interesting thing yesterday, there was a new element in the swearing-in ceremony. There was a revamped oath for the Attorney General and Justice Minister, David Lametti, who is continuing to serve in that position, had new wording incorporated into his oath as a result of the SNC-Lavalin affair. The oath Lametti swore was that as Minister of Justice, he'll see that administration of public affairs is in accordance with the law. As Attorney General, he pledged to uphold the Constitution, the rule of law, and the independence of the judiciary and the prosecutorial function. I, David Lametti, do solemnly and sincerely promise and swear that I will truly and faithfully, and to the best of my skill and knowledge, execute the powers and trusts reposed in me as Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada. As Minister of Justice, I will see that the administration of public affairs is in accordance with the law. As Attorney General of Canada, I will uphold the Constitution, the rule of law, and the independence of the judiciary and of the prosecutorial function. So help me God. Yeah, safe to say there will be uh, some extra eyeballs paying attention to Lametti in that new position, or sorry, as he continues in that role as he takes over from uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. And uh, looking at the makeup of the cabinet that the Prime Minister announced yesterday, uh, Trudeau says that he built it and made his decisions based on the best qualified people who could work in the interests of Canadians. Trudeau says he and Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland have worked well together when she was Foreign Affairs Minister. 
our ability to work well together on uh, these issues that, uh, quite frankly, touch national unity, touch uh, energy and environment, uh, touch, touch relations uh, with all provinces and all regions of this country, uh, is going to be an extremely important thing at a time where we see uh, some very different perspectives across the country that need to be brought together. And one of the themes of this government in the coming years and months ahead will be its ability to unify the country. Uh, we have, of course, seen how left out many feel in the Prairie provinces. Uh, Trudeau says the Liberals recognize that this parliament will be one in which collaboration and working with a broad range of parties and stakeholders across the country will be key. And says that especially is true when it comes to the environment. He says they've been very clearly, very clear that Canadians want action on climate change and they want to see continued economic growth. Having, having a broad range of voices within cabinet and indeed across parliament will allow us all to work together in ways that build a stronger and brighter future for us all, while at the same time ensuring uh, the jobs we need today and the economic growth we need tomorrow. Now, there was some immediate action reaction yesterday from around the country. Uh, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe says that he'll be judging the new federal cabinet by the decisions it's making and not by the people that are filling the portfolios. Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister says he's looking forward to working with the new federal cabinet but warns that actions will matter more than the appointments. And Alberta Premier Jason Kenney is urging federal cabinet ministers with portfolios of interest to Alberta to listen to the province's concerns and to take them seriously. Kenney says in a statement that his government is willing to work Work with Prime Minister Trudeau and his new cabinet to address issues that the province has red flagged following last month's federal election. The Liberals did not win a seat, of course, in Alberta, and uh, talk of Western alienation has grown. So uh, one theme in all of those comments is congratulations to those getting picked by uh, Trudeau to be a cabinet minister, but let's actually wait to see what they do, which is, I guess, a fair statement, and it's going to be interesting to see how some of the new faces in those portfolios uh, will react and engage as time moves on. Now, after the break, I will be joined by Toronto Star reporter Alex Ballingall, TRU Associate Professor of Political Studies Robert Hanlon to dig a little deeper into who has been appointed and what we can expect for those new faces in those new positions. So stick around. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the show here on Thursday, November the 21st. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has unveiled a reconfigured cabinet that has been expanded with the intent of addressing pressing issues raised during last month's federal election. A dozen current ministers are taking on new portfolios and seven rookies are now in cabinet, two of whom were elected for the first time here in 2019. I'm joined now by Toronto Star reporter Alex Ballingall. Alex, thanks for coming on. No worries. Thanks for having me. And I'm also joined in studio by TRU Associate Professor of Political Studies, Robert Hanlon. Robert, thanks for coming in. Good morning. So, um, you know, like I said, unveiled new cabinet yesterday, seven fresh faces, including two rookie MPs, ten ministers are saying put, and there are, of course, some new positions coming as well. Robert, I'll start with you since you're here in studio. I guess, was there anything that stood out here? Was there one big headline that you took away from yesterday's shuffle? Uh, it's clearly the appointment of a, a deputy PM where we see Christy Freeland moving into new portfolios, but interestingly, keeping her other big files, including the U.S. MCA and this kind of the you know North American uh, portfolio. So you know we're going to see some really interesting. Uh, 
conversations happening with her. She's a seasoned diplomat. She's well respected. So you know, and she kind of deflects part of the Trudeau uh, imagery, hopefully, uh, into you know her own kind of style of, of politics. What about for you, Alex? Was there one particular headline that you took away from from what was happening yesterday? Well, I, I think Robert's right. The the, uh, the Freeland focus was was maybe one of the major things. I, I guess the other uh, storyline. Um, which is which is somewhat linked to the the Freeland thing is, is the efforts of the Trudeau government to soothe um, you know the rumblings of discontent coming out of the prairies um, by appointing her as intergovernmental you know that what you know potentially one of their more uh, more uh, competent ministers uh, at a time like this in a place or in a in a portfolio like that will be uh, I think that's a signal. Uh, and it, you know it was coming out from everybody, all the ministers in their scrums outside Rideau Hall too, that, that that it's going to be a big priority to sort of listen to these concerns and try and trying to assuage some of the discontent in the uh, in the oil patch. Um, Robert, I'll, I'll follow up on that with you. So Freeland, you know, moving into that role of deputy PM, uh, and then Francois Philippe Champagne becomes minister of foreign affairs. I guess, what are your thoughts on the, the kind of the work? I guess that he has ahead to to you know deal with some of the issues when it comes to things like China and and you know what's happening in the United States. And with uh, you know, you mentioned the USMCA sort of sticking with Freeland, but he's still probably going to have some input there. I guess, just what are your thoughts on on his uh, portfolio that he takes over from Christy Freeland and the work that he has ahead of him? Yeah, uh, challenging, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, you know we're dealing with not only kind of exceptional times with a, a U.S. administration, but also you know we are really in the middle of of a dispute with with the world's second largest economy, China. And so, you know, how do you go about that? Now, uh, those are some things. There's also other. Uh, international relations events such as our bid for the UN uh, Security Council is a rotating member. There's you know, so there's always these things. But what I find interesting is he is a you know he's very seasoned international kind of uh, perspective that he he brings. He's you know he's been around the world. He does have some experience with China, uh, where he's been you know he was involved in in some trade negotiations uh, two years ago and part of a Trudeau delegation. Um, he's a connector. He's well liked. He's very outgoing. Uh, he's been to Kamloops before, so he know he's very well known in in the country. When he was infrastructure uh, in, in dealing with infrastructure file and moving around many municipalities, so he brings a lot to the table. And I think it it speaks to his uh, his view that you know he's really this uh, connector that can 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 boast the image of Canada, but in a very diplomatic kind of with a, a lot of global experience uh, and and in many ways kind of uh, not ideological uh, perspectives. Um, Alex, I guess, what else did you see? So, we, you know, we kind of touched on what happened there with uh, Christian Freeland moving into that deputy prime minister role and, uh, you know, the, the, the shoes that, I guess, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne has to fill here, um, you know, as he takes over that foreign affairs uh, portfolio. Uh, you look at, at uh, someone like Champagne, someone from Quebec, a Quebec MP, there's a lot of emphasis that's being put out there, uh, you know, into Quebec, and it looks like uh, maybe Trudeau is looking ahead to the, even the next election already and thinking that uh, if he can win some more seats in Quebec, maybe he can win a majority. That's how I'm sort of reading the tea leaves here when it comes to what's happening um, with those appointments in, in Quebec. I guess, what, what are you seeing on that front? Do you do you sort of look at this as a, as a chance for Trudeau to maybe make up some ground in Quebec and, and re regain some of those seats? 
I think, yeah, politically, that that is obviously a priority for them. I think, you know, in this election that we just had, they saw that province as sort of the the pathway to a majority, which obviously did not come to fruition for them. And, yeah, it's interesting that, you know, they, they in, in uh, appointing Pablo Rodriguez as, as the new uh, government leader in the House, they've also appointed him as the, the Quebec lieutenant for the government, which is, you know, a political position that they didn't have before and i don't think they have i could be wrong on this but i don't believe they have for any of the other regions have this like specific political minister sort of that that will uh, deal with with a, a, a certain region so i think that that is an indication that um Quebec is a, is, a, is a region politically for them that's high, still high on the priority list for sure. Um, one one interesting move for me personally here was uh, what what happened with Jim Carr. So the Winnipeg MP, you know, says uh, he will work to strike a balance now between battling cancer and his newly appointed role as the federal government special representative to the Prairies. Um, so he didn't get a cabinet position, uh, being one of the only Liberals in the Prairie provinces to to win a seat. So I was a little bit surprised that he didn't get necessarily a cabinet role. But um, I mean, when you look at his health concerns maybe it kind of makes sense but uh, being the special representative to the prairie is this new position it's uh, definitely going to be i think uh, an important one moving forward given what's happening in in places like alberta and, and you know the the concerns that they have about um unity within the country so although it's not a cabinet position like i said it seems like it's going to be an important one moving forward i guess what do you think about this new position here i'll start with you robert and sort of this interprovincial relationships that he's going to have to deal with i mean it seems like he's going to have a lot on his plate here moving forward uh, it's a tall order, you know. Um, I'm not. I don't know the backstory of, of why he was not appointed minister, but I, I suspect it was largely due to his health and, and family situation. But you know, the Trudeau government didn't have many options <laughs> in this mm-hmm. case. You know, what do they do? They've got now uh, twenty. You know, we're talking twenty-seven ministers from Central Canada. Uh, it's they are clearly playing a, a short game. And, and Alex is absolutely right about you know the the special appointee to Quebec. Uh, you know, so they're trying to capture votes um, from Central Canada, and so you know they're limited what they can do. What's interesting, though, is is what they haven't been saying, and what they're not. Uh, you know, what there there's no kind of clear uh, pushback about uh, what, you know that we're not going to we're going to be uh, aggressively going into the West. We're we're subtly doing this. We're doing this very diplomatically. We've got high profile members that are going to be uh, working on these listening conversations, and you know. It was constantly about listening. We're listening, uh, but I, I do think they're playing this this other game of, of of trying to capture votes for the next election. Alex, what do you make of this uh, the appointment of Jim Carr being this special um, assistant or, or sorry special representative to the Prairies? I mean, uh, like like I said off the top, there it's uh, going to be a difficult position given kind of what uh, we're seeing in Alberta and their uh, I guess reluctance to even necessarily accept some of the messages coming out of Ottawa. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think, uh, I don't know exactly, but I suspect that, you know, he wasn't made a full minister because of, you know, he's, he's facing cancer and he's entering sort of that battle right now. But but his appointment as that special representative for the Prairies, you know, senior minister in the last government, um, you know, uh, uh, uh Competent figure in the Liberal Party, uh, I think it, it's it, like appointing him as in as the special rep is sort of uh, the way I see it. It's, it's a part of the collection of signals that they're trying to send that you know, yeah, we, we got shut out in Alberta and Saskatchewan, 
Um, but, you know, we've got Freeland. They've been emphasizing that she was actually born, I think, in, like, Peace River. And, and Wilkinson, the new environment minister, grew up in Saskatchewan. So they're, they're trying to uh, put together at least, like, uh, in terms of optics and, and sort of a uh, links to these places, even, though, even if they weren't uh, elected there. Yeah, I guess uh, you can try to play up that narrative, although I guess not everyone necessarily is a big fan of where they were born. So you can you can say it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's true or that they have that strong connection to that place. Yeah. Um, since, since you brought him up, I will uh, kind of move over to what's happening here in BC with uh, with Jonathan Wilkinson. So he's becoming the new Minister for Environment and Climate Change. Um, pretty significant portfolio, I think, given the talk about climate change in the election and its importance to voters last month. Um, you know, I'm not sure it's necessarily shocking to see the position given to someone out here in the westernmost province, given you know what we're seeing when it comes to things like pipelines that he has to deal with, um, I mean, so what what do you make of the strategy, Robert, to have someone out here from from BC be the minister of climate change? I mean, it's a significant portfolio, um, and it's uh, I think a, a, an issue that uh, you know obviously a lot of the western provinces maybe aren't necessarily buying into that climate change needs to be the top of the priority list. It seems to be more of an issue here in Quebec or sorry in in BC itself with the you know see the green movement and, and the strong NDP presence that's here. Um, so. I guess to, for you, does it make sense to see uh, a BC minister be a part of that climate change portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Wilkinson's been a, a part of the party for many years. You know, he's won a second time. He's got a lot of support in his North Vancouver riding. You know, um, so, you know, it makes sense, you know, and, and, and again, with the BC, uh, you know, our narrative around, you know, what pipelines and, and the coast, you know, it's something that would be it would be almost miscalculated if the if the position was given to someone from a different part, region. So there is absolutely the, this imaging and narrative that you're doing, but there's a, a very practical reason for appointing him, and in, in to be frank, a smart reason. And he's well respected, and he's been in the party for quite some time. Uh, got about a minute left here, so I'll get you guys both out of here on this. Alex, I'll ask you first. Sort of, uh, what is there a, one storyline that maybe you're looking forward to or going to be paying close attention to moving forward now that we know who's in the positions? I think for me it'll be uh, clarifying what exactly uh, Freeland will be in charge of, like uh, what she's overseeing. We, as, as Robert mentioned, like she still has a hand in overseeing the U.S. Canada relationship. How does that play into Champagne's duties as, as Global Affairs Minister? Um, and, and I guess just yeah, clarifying exactly what her role will be and how much you know, influence you'll have over other portfolios, even 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 over over things like the purse strings and finance. Like, w will she be able to in, in in negotiating things like potential equalization with 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 you know, as Jason Kenney and Scott Mo want to talk about? W will she, whose voice will be more influential in cabinet on that? Will it be her or more no? Or will it, you know, just how all that's going to play out and. and who's going to be the most influential. I think that that's a big storyline we're watching here, for sure. And, and Robert, for you as well, one one particular storyline you're looking forward to? Yeah, I echo that. I'm really interested in how they're going to, you know, if we're going to see a softening of the Trudeau personality cult and more a, a prominent role by the, these cabinet ministers. And, you know, it's really, you already see this kind of trying to play down Trudeau's character and personality, knowing that he's, he's such a divisive figure. And that's going to be a big part in, in creating more bridges with the regions in Canada and, and thinking that the party is more than just Trudeau, and, it, and it's, it's a party committed to regional unity. Well, that uh, unfortunately wraps up our time, guys, but thanks so much for doing this. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the phone. I always appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. And uh, Robert, thanks so much for coming to the studio. Always appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. Awesome. That was uh, Toronto Star reporter Alex Bellingall and TRU Associate Professor of Political Studies, 
Robert Hanlon. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking about the impact of climate change and how it will affect our food. So stick around. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday, November the 21st. And as always, thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, climate change appears to be fueling a rise in people getting sick from foodborne illnesses in Canada and around the world. That's according to one Canadian food safety expert. And I'm joined now by Canadian Research Institute for Food Safety, Department of Food Science at the University of Guelph, Lawrence Goodrich. Laurie, thanks so much, or Lawrence, thanks so much for coming on with me. Good afternoon. Or good morning. Uh, yeah, de- and, uh, yeah, depending on where you live, right? It's uh, it's afternoon somewhere, and of course it's afternoon <laughs> where you are in Ontario right now. Um, so let's just start with kind of getting an overall sense of what we're talking about here. So you say that climate change will result in, in more food-borne illnesses. I guess what is it about a warming climate that will help contribute to the fact that we will see or experience more illness uh, when it comes to our food? So there's several aspects to uh, climate change, not just increased temperature, uh, that are causing an increase in foodborne illness. So I like to focus on three main causes um, or three main consequences, I suppose, of climate change. First is uh, extreme weather events like uh, hurricanes and other uh, major weather storms that lead to extreme flooding uh, or extreme rainfall and then flooding. The flooding can cause animal manure um, to wash onto fields where we grow fresh fruits and vegetables. Of course, we, we do not cook the majority of fresh fruits and vegetables that we consume, so um, we eat those raw. If uh, manure has gone on there, they, that can cause contamination and make people sick. The second thing is rising ocean temperatures. So um, particularly in BC and Alaska, in the last five or so years, we've seen um, rising ocean temperatures have led to a certain type of bacteria called Vibrio um, that can uh, grow much better in warm temperatures, and so they've, uh, they can increase their numbers and contaminate shellfish. And again, um, hundreds of people have been sickened in BC in the last few years due to eating raw shellfish that was contaminated with, with Vibrio, and this was directly linked to the rising ocean temperature. And finally, rising air temperatures. So um, we know that as the air temperature increases, uh, as the ambient air temperature increases, foodborne bacteria like E. coli and salmonella uh, can also grow more. This is one reason why we refrigerate our foods. Um, and there have been reports that have shown that for um, a one degree, even a one degree increase in the ambient air temperature, 6% more E. coli infections were observed in the Canadian population. How, how concerning, I guess, do you think that this should be in the sense of, you know, how, how serious are these illnesses that could be contracted as a result of eating some of this food that uh, is contaminated with some of these uh, bacteria that you're, you're speaking to? I mean, when I think of something like salmonella poisoning, it's usually like, you know, a 24, 48-hour thing where, um, you know, you feel really bad for those couple of days, but you're never overly concerned about it being life-threatening or anything along those lines. I mean, when we're talking about foodborne illness, how, how um, um, alarming is it when it comes to our health? Is it something Something that uh, you know is 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 more than just a, a concern when it comes to having a 24-hour stomach bug. Is there a more concern that we should have when when we are um, you know consuming uh, food that might have bacteria on it? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, the first thing I, I like to say when asked 
um, such questions is that, you know, in Canada we have among the safest food supplies uh, in the world. Um, so, so you know, we have a lot of great surveillance systems and, and we're doing a fairly good job of, uh, of being able to detect foodborne illnesses. That said, um, each year, one in eight Canadians become sick due to foodborne illness. And certain groups, uh, which we call high-risk groups, like pregnant women, the uh, children, and the elderly, are at much higher risk of uh, contracting this, these illnesses because their immune systems are either not fully formed if they're, uh, if, uh, if they're children or they're breaking down if they're the elderly. Or uh, in the case of pregnant women, um, the immune system is often um, compromised so that uh, the, uh, the unborn fetus can, can grow. So, um, you know, in, in such cases, it's often not just a 24-hour bug. And, and people have become sick and people have died. Um, another, another concern is that we're also seeing increases in antibiotic resistance in these bacteria. So when people become sick, um, if they become seriously sick, um, then they need treatment, and, 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 and increasingly, in many cases, we can't treat them. So, you know, while I don't think we need to panic, um, it is something that we need to be uh, very vigilant on, and we need to try to develop better surveillance methods to determine the true uh, impact that climate change has on food safety. Mm, that's interesting. I never even really thought about the impact on uh, you know, antibiotics and things along those lines and, and how those would uh, potentially be less uh, effective um, you know, as, as our bodies sort of uh, become immune or, or these bacteria, as you mentioned, become more immune to these types of, uh, uh, of drugs that are being used to treat these illnesses. I'm joined now by Lawrence Goodrich with the Canadian Research Institute for Food Safety and the Department of Food Science at the University of Guelph. I guess, how do you view, you know, you've done this research to kind of see the fact that there is a, a greater concern moving forward as climate change uh, has a greater impact on, on our climate or sorry, on our, on our globe and, and how that impacts the food that we eat and there is more of a concern about foodborne illness. I guess, how do you foresee this changing the way that we consume food? Do you see this having a significant impact on how we as people um, you know, on, on our habits and how we uh, go about you mentioned like uh, when it comes to, to our fruit, uh, fruits and vegetables we typically eat those raw um, so there's that more of a concern that some of the bacteria that might be on they could just sit on that for a longer period of time do you see a shift in how we uh, view our food and, and potentially uh, take precautions to ensure that we are safeguarded against some of these foodborne illnesses that may exist so I, I think the answer to that question lies um, in two parts. First, uh, what can we do during food pr uh, production to reduce the risk of foodborne illness as it relates to climate change? Um, you mentioned fruits and vegetables. So the thing about fruits and vegetables is that once, it's, once they're, they are contaminated uh, with, with foodborne bacteria, there's nothing that consumers can really do. Uh, we're often told wash our fruits and vegetables, and that is correct because we can wash away things like dirt and pesticides and so forth, but not bacteria. So really the solution uh, to that issue it lies during production. We have to develop better indicators um, that would show that, you know, these crops are at risk of contamination and therefore should not be consumed. So one great example of that happened in uh, last year, in 2018, with Hurricane Florence, which impacted North Carolina and led to extreme flooding. And the flooding led to lagoons where hog waste was kept. Uh, th those uh, lagoons overflowed and impacted 
uh, growing areas, uh, fresh food and vegetable growing areas. So the uh, public health officials determined that those fruits and vegetables could not be harvested and consumed. So that is an example of how one can manage that risk on the production side. On the consumer side, I, I certainly think, depending on the food, there will be, uh, be changes that um, that need to be implemented. And so one example uh, I will give about that is shellfish. Uh, people like to consume shellfish like mussels or uh, mollusks raw. Um, I think as we see increased um, outbreaks, uh, that that practice may have to be curtailed. Or at the very least, when we see that the ocean temperature has risen to such a, uh, a level that we think that an outbreak is imminent, then for those time periods, um, perhaps consuming shellfish raw um, would be would be stopped. Uh, how how quickly, or uh, I guess you know, looking forward, uh, you know, as we see more of an impact from climate change, as we see warmer temperatures and and warmer ocean temperatures, um, what what do you foresee as this having a um, um, change in in terms of our food safety? I guess moving forward, I'm trying to to phrase this question in the right way. Um, you know, how how do we um, when we look at our food supply that exists as it is now, I guess, do you see a big shift in what will be available or, or do you see like maybe vast majority or um, vast amounts of crops being having, having a significant impact as a result of, of some of those uh, factors that you had mentioned um, moving forward? You, I'm just trying to say like, uh, you know, do you think our food supply is going to be significantly impacted uh, as a result of these foodborne illnesses being more prevalent? I guess that that's probably the best way to phrase that. Um, so uh, I, that's a that's an interesting question. I think that our food supply will be impacted. The extent to which it will be impacted remains unknown at this point. Uh, I, I think I, I don't. I certainly don't see um, large scale disruption of of the food supply. I think um, in many cases the effects of climate change will be localized. So we've already talked about British Columbia and Alaska with the rising ocean temperature. Um, hurricanes tend to impact the, um, the, the U.S. south and the eastern seaboard. So, you know, I, I can see um, those areas, um, uh, you know, but localized areas be, being impacted. I, I think the, the first thing, though, we need to, to, to do is try to get a better um, handle on the actual impact. We have great surveillance systems in Canada to uh, investigate foodborne illness. But we don't have any real surveillance systems that measure how much of that foodborne illness is due to climate change. I think that's the first step that we need to do. Once we have developed that, then we can actually determine the true level of risk that is associated with climate change and take appropriate steps. Well, so definitely interesting information that you have provided here. Uh, I'm definitely going to be uh, washing my food probably a little bit better here in the next couple of days uh, as I think about this. But uh, yeah, definitely some interesting stuff. I never really thought about the impact of, of foodborne illness as a result of warming temperatures, but it makes perfect sense. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on and speaking with me and raising some awareness about this issue. Thanks so much. 
Thank you. All right, that was Lawrence Goodrich, Canadian Research Institute for Food Safety and Department of Food Science at the University of Guelph, talking about the rise of foodborne illnesses in our food as a result of climate change and a result of warming temperatures and, and just the impact that it is going to have on the food that we consume. It's definitely something to think about. We all like to eat. We all like good food. Uh, so let's uh, make sure it keeps, uh, keeps safe so we can continue to eat it and enjoy it. Uh, coming up after the break, what is the protocol that's in place uh, for concussions? How, uh, how well are we doing when it comes to recognizing concussions and, and being able to diagnose them? Well, I'll be talking with a concussion expert after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show. Concussions are an ongoing problem that many in the sporting world are trying to get a better handle on. You know, we see efforts being made in hockey and, and football and those heavy contact sports where the risk of a concussion is high. And it's easy to understand, you know, why those, uh, those sports do have a higher risk of concussion. But what about other sports? What about cycling? Well, there's a new partnership between HeadCheck Health and Trek Segafredo. I'm hoping I'm saying that right, which is a road cycling team with 24 riders on the men's side, 13 riders on the women's team, uh, hailing from a combined 19 different countries. So a pretty significant organization there. And I'm joined now by the CEO of Head Check Health, Harrison Brown. Harrison, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So let's just start by talking about the issue of concussions in the sport of cycling. I mean, how serious of a problem is this? Cycling is not really a sport I would think of of having, you know, a significant risk of brain injury. But obviously, this is something that you guys have uh, have, have 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 identified as as an issue uh, in the sport there at, at there at head head check. So can you tell me about sort of what work you have done in the sport of cycling to find out just how big of a problem it is in that sport? Yeah, I mean, we're really going off of, uh, you know, medical research here. And, and, and what medical research shows us is that one in five cyclists at some point receives a concussion from the sport. And, and, and that is actually higher than both hockey and football. So, you know, it is a huge issue. Uh, you know, there, there's logistical issues with it because it's not like you're on a rink or on a field. You're obviously moving uh, and so getting medical care to folks when they do have a fall is, is an issue. But, yeah, it's, it's a massive problem in cycling. Uh, when you look at, for example, mountain biking, uh, it's even bigger because the, the risks are, are higher than that. Road cycling a bit safer, uh, but still you, you don't have these protocols or systems in place yet uh, where we're able to take care of players the same way as in football or hockey. Yeah, and, and, and as I was kind of getting ready for this, I was looking at some videos of just some of those cycling pileups you see on road races that, uh, you know, involve like 30, 40, 50 riders at one time. So then you can kind of understand how uh, a lot of concussions could happen in one uh, small event. So it kind of made a little bit more sense the more I thought about it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about Head Check there and, and how this unique concussion tool works and, and sort of what cyclists are, are doing in order for this to, to have an effect? Yeah, sure. So we're a Vancouver-based company. Uh, we were actually a spinoff from researchers at UBC that were doing concussion work. And, and really, the system is a digital tool that essentially allows organizations to execute their concussion policy. And so, for example, with Trek, what we've done is we configure the system to a cycling-specific protocol. And so, you know, what that means is we set it up, we go, we train their medical team. So, uh, you know, professional cycling teams, they have team doctors. Uh, we train them, we show them how to use the software. Uh, they do a baseline test for all the riders. So there's a, you know, a reference value for each rider as to, you know, how their brain works when they're healthy. 
then anytime that there is an injury during a race or a practice, the medical staff can, can do an assessment right there from their phone, or if they have the laptop, they can do it from their laptop. And, and what happens then is we actually facilitate the communication. So if the head doctor for Trek, let's say, is in France at the Tour de France, and there's another race on the women's side that's going on in Belgium, uh, he would be able to get a notification from wherever the team staff is operating and go on and look at the results. And so then together with his medical team, uh, they would make a decision. If it was decided that the player was, was going to be removed from play, uh, they would then put it through a return-to-play protocol, which again is managed through our system. So it's, it's really a stepwise fashion where you're tracking the player's recovery. Uh, during that, the rider can also enter their own information, so they can track their symptoms daily, they can report on their sleep quality, anything that might be helpful to the medical team. And, and so what you're getting here is an improvement in the actual protocol and, and execution of it. And, and then on top of all that, what we're doing on, on our side at, at HeadCheck is we're actually doing analytics on the data and providing reporting back to them that will help them uh, in the future improve the safety standards. So how how is exactly is this monitoring people? I guess is it, are you wearing like a bracelet or something that it's able to kind of monitor your your cognitive abilities? Or I'm just sort of curious how this exactly works. I'm trying to picture it in my brain and I'm having a tough time. Sure. So uh, yeah, can you kind of take me through sort of what what a cyclist is wearing or or an athlete is wearing in order for for that data to show up on on a phone and and have someone be able to to basically I guess diagnose a concussion. Yeah, so, so our system really, it, it's quite flexible, so it depends on what's appropriate for the sport and the level of play and also the, the medical professionals that are using it. So in some cases, we do have you know physical devices that athletes will wear, and that data will connect to the phone. Uh, however, in Trek's case, what they're doing is it's all user inputs. So essentially, they're, they're asking the rider certain questions. They're getting them to perform certain things, like, for example, a balance test where they close their eyes, they stand on one foot, they're doing walking tests, they're doing memory tests, they're doing coordination tests. And so really the phone is just a way to stepwise them through that process and for them to collect the results on the phone. And really what it's doing is it's trying to mimic what the best practice for taking care of those athletes would be. Okay, so it almost takes a look at how you're performing when you're fully healthy, and then if you were to suffer some sort of injury or a potential brain injury, then it would uh, review and, and compare, I guess is sort exactly. of how... Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. Um, just kind of want your overall thoughts here. As uh, we're sort of starting to run out of time a little bit, a couple minutes left here, though. Uh, Harrison, just sort of, how do you feel that uh, you know we, uh, in, as as humans, I guess, are dealing with the issue of concussions? It's something that's had a lot of uh, you know media play over the last number of years, the last decade or so. We've seen a lot of more attention being paid to the issue of concussions in sport. Um, I mean, we, we've clearly seen more of a uh, an attention being paid to it, and, and more of a concern when when athletes are diagnosed with concussions. Or a lot more caution being taken before sending them back out onto the field or rink or or road race wherever they may be competing uh, just you know are we getting to a point where we are you know really confident in our abilities and as, as people and as doctors to, to diagnose concussions and make sure that people are ready to get back to their sport i don't know how much of that you can technically answer but i'm just yeah. curious sort of how you feel about uh, uh, the progress we've made on this particular injury yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a couple ways to answer that. I mean, on the research side, we, we still know very little about the injury. And so the, the tests that we're running and the, and the tests that are available across the world, uh, they're the best that we have right now, but they will look very different in five or ten years. And, uh, you know, I think the media attention of, of people being aware of the fact that we don't really know that much about this 
uh, is good. And, and so what it means is that we're being cautious. And I think that has been probably the biggest positive thing that's come out of the media attention is that people are being more conservative with how they approach the injury. And that's really, really positive. Now, there is still a ways to go. I mean, we regularly as a company, you know, we, we, we bump into teams and organizations that just simply would never use our product because they don't see the value in keeping their players safe. And, and so what's going to happen eventually is those people are generally going to be from older generations where when they were growing up, this wasn't an issue. They, they you know, sucked it up and went back out on the ice or back out in the field. But what's going to happen is eventually the, the newer generations that have been educated on it are going to start you know, becoming the decision makers in these organizations, and it will actually have a, you know, a complete shift of the entire sports world where everybody will be aware of it, everybody will be protected, and we'll create a much safer environment for everybody. Right on. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, Harrison, but thanks so much for coming on and talking about this. And then, like you said, maybe for the next five, ten years, we can talk about this a number of more times as things progress. So thanks so much for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. Look forward to it. Take care. Right on. That was uh, Harrison Brown, the CEO of HeadCheck on their concussion tool now being used in the sport of cycling. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.